Will SCOTUS remove the threat of Trump or be as political and corrupt as Bush v. Gore was? Donald Trump is a threat to America. His loyalty to Putin also makes him a threat to world peace, as he just showed us by killing the Senate bill to secure the border and provide aid to Taiwan, Ukraine, Israel, and the Palestinians in Gaza. And today the Supreme Court will have an ability to remove that threat by simply following the plain language of the U.S. Constitution that says people who've engaged in insurrection or provided aid and comfort to same can't hold public office. So what can we expect? Will the court follow the law? They certainly haven't in the past, and it appears that, at the least, Clarence Thomas again has no intent of following the law and recusing himself, even though his wife was personally involved in the insurrection. Nor will Roberts, Kavanaugh, or or Coney Barrett, even though all three helped George W. Bush's legal team argue his case before the court in 2000 and were rewarded with their own seats on that body. The last time the Supreme Court inserted itself into a presidential election was 2000, when multiple members of the court had clear conflicts of interest that, like Thomas today, they chose to ignore to hand the election to George W. Bush, even though Al Gore won the election both in the popular vote and the Electoral College. For the record, it's important to remember that history, as it appears, may be about to... Excuse me. For the record, it's important to remember that history. As it appears, history may be about to repeat itself. In the process of ratifying Bush's election, five members of the unelected third branch of government made sure that its own majority character and nature probably wouldn't change for a long enough time that the court could cast a hugely conservative shadow over the American electoral process, guaranteeing that people like themselves and their patrons, wealthy, powerful, and corporate-connected, would continue to have a disproportionate impact on future elections. Here's how they did it and what their actions might tell us about how the insurrection case before the court today might play out. Sandra Day O'Connor. Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was no stranger to Republican politics. She'd served three terms as a Republican state senator in Arizona, her last term as majority leader, the ultimate political insider's job. Appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1981 by President Ronald Reagan, 19 years later she had decided she wanted out. The workload was intense, and her husband was starting to display some of the same early symptoms of Alzheimer's that she had observed in Reagan during his second term as president, and she missed Arizona terribly. So on the evening of November 7, 2000, when O'Connor and her husband were guests at an election eve watching party, the CBS reporting, uh, excuse me, an election eve party watching the CBS election reporting, and Dan Rather came on to call Florida for Al Gore, making Gore president, She was horrified. This is terrible, Newsweek reporters Evan Thomas and Michael Isikoff quote two different witnesses as saying she exclaimed. O'Connor was so troubled that she got up and with an obvious look of disgust left the room. The puzzled guest turned to her husband, John O'Connor, who with the candor that often accompanies early dementia explained that she wanted to retire to Arizona but wasn't willing to do so if her successor would be appointed by a Democratic president. On the first day of December, however, she would do something about her concern, voting to block the state of Florida from conducting a recount that had just been ordered by the Florida Supreme Court. That vote froze in place the win of George W. Bush as the constitutional clock was running out on when the election had to be decided. Clarence Thomas. George H. W. Bush, court appointee Clarence Thomas, as is usually the case, wasn't in a public setting on Election Eve, but it's not hard to guess his concern. His wife, Virginia, worked for the Heritage Foundation, a far-right think tank in Washington, D.C., as the director of executive branch relations. 
As such, she was organizing resumes for loyal right-wingers who had become appointees to a Bush White House. The week her husband's court accepted the Bush v. Gore case, and before it was decided, she sent out emails soliciting potential appointments for the Bush administration. The New York Times noted in a December 12, 2000 article, Job of Thomas's Wife Raises Conflict of Interest Questions, quote, A federal appellate judge, Gilbert S. Merritt of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, said he saw a serious conflict of interest for Justice Thomas in deciding a case that could throw the election to Governor Bush. Quote, the, sp- the spouse has obviously got a substantial interest that could be affected by the outcome, he said in an interview from his home in Nashville. You should disqualify yourself. I think he'd be subject to some kind of investigation in the Senate. End quote. But he urged Justice Thomas to remove himself from the case in order to prevent any violation of a federal law. He cited Section 455 of Title 28 of the U.S. Code, disqualification of justices, judges, or magistrates, that requires court officers to excuse themselves if a spouse has an interest that could be substantially affected by the outcome of a proceeding. And Thomas himself, as the former legislative assistant to Republican Senator John Danforth, who championed his appointment to the Supreme Court, was no stranger to Republican politics after a bruising confirmation hearing. Anita Hill bore no goodwill for Democrats. Antonin Scalia. Reagan appointee Justice Antonin Scalia on December 1 looked down from his leather chair in the Supreme Court chambers to see Ted Olson, a senior partner, the law firm equivalent of a senior executive or director of the law firm Gibbs and Dunn and Crutcher. As a senior partner at, partner at GDNC, Olson was among the management, the boss, of Scalia's son, Eugene Scalia, who was merely a partner in the firm. Scalia chose not to mention his son's association with Olson and didn't recuse himself. Later, he would famously and sarcastically tell a student at a law forum of the Bush v. Gore ruling, quote, get over it. William Rehnquist. Nixon appointee William Rehnquist had made a name for himself in Arizona Republican politics in the 1960s, leading what a U.S. Senate investigation termed a ballot security effort to challenge the votes of American Indians and African Americans, who were more likely to vote Democratic. The Senate investigation further noted that Rehnquist, back in the day in Arizona, had publicly opposed a Phoenix public accommodations ordinance, and he publicly challenged a plan to end school segregation in Phoenix. And by 2000, 76 years old and in unreliable health, Rehnquist had discussed with more than one friend his concern about retiring or even dying on the bench and who would replace him. Anthony Kennedy. Reagan appointee Anthony Kennedy had been a close friend of Ronald Reagan, helping draft for him tax cuts when Reagan was governor of California, and got his appointment to the federal bench on Reagan's suggestion to then-President Gerald Ford. Reagan then appointed him to the Supreme Court after first trying unsuccessfully, this was back in the days when Democrats would say no to a Republican president, to put Robert Bork and Douglas Ginsburg in that slot. An affable man, Kennedy was far more follower than leader. During the years Rehnquist was alive and Kennedy was on the bench, 92 to 2005, Kennedy voted identically with Rehnquist 92% of the time, more than any other justice. The future of the court. In the Bush v. Gore case, these five Republicans were faced with the opportunity to shape the very court itself for the next generation. They, and they alone, had the power to make sure that a Republican, regardless of their personal opinions of George W. Bush, would appoint at least one and possibly more justices, thus keeping the majority of the court on their side. Al Gore had won the presidency by 543,895 votes nationally. No candidate in the history of the Republic had ever had such a large popular vote win and lost the White House. He also, it turned out, had won the vote in Florida. 
although his initial legal strategy of only recounting three counties wouldn't have proven that. It took a recount of the entire state. President Gore? Almost a year after the election, a consortium of news organizations actually physically counted all the Florida ballots, as the Florida Supreme Court had ordered. What they found just a few weeks after the 9-11 attacks so horrified them that they chose to report the story in an intentionally confusing way so as not to diminish President Bush's authority during a time of crisis. The New York Times on November 12, 2001, published the results of the statewide recount that it said, quote, could have produced enough votes to tilt the election to Gore's way no matter what standard was chosen to judge voter intent. The Times article went on to document how Al Gore won Florida in 2000, quote, if all the ballots had been reviewed under any of seven single standards, all the ones that were used by either party, and combined with the results of an examination of overvotes, Mr. Gore would have won, but by a very narrow margin. For example, using the most permissive Dimple Chad standard, nearly 25,000 additional votes would have been real, reaped, yielding 644 net new votes for Mr. Gore and giving him a 107-vote victory margin. Using the most restrictive standard, the fully punched ballot card, uh, 5,252 new votes would have been added to the Florida total, producing a net gain of 625 votes for Mr. Gore and a, and a 115-vote victory margin. All the other combinations likewise produced additional votes for Mr. Gore, giving him a slight margin over Mr. Bush when at least two of the three coders agreed, end quote. And yet all of this information was buried well after the 17th paragraph of the story, which car carried the baffling headline, Study of Disputed Florida Ballots Finds Justices Did Not Cast the Deciding Votes. The Times analysis further showed that had spoiled ballots, ballots normally punched but spoiled because the voter also wrote on the ballot the name of the candidate, been counted, the results were even more spectacular. While 35,176 voters wrote in Bush's name after punching the hole for him, 80,775 wrote in Gore's name while punching the hole for Gore. Catherine Harris decided that these were spoiled ballots because they were both punched and written upon in order that none of them should be counted. Many were from African-American districts, where older and often broken machines were distributed, causing voters to write onto their ballots so their intent would be unambiguous. The New York Times added this information in a sidebar article with a self-explanatory title by Ford Festelton, Quote, ballots cast by blacks and older voters were tossed in far greater numbers. Although it took a year for these findings to become public, even at the time of the election, reports were leaking into Washington, D.C., and thus to the five Republican appointees on the court, that there were huge irregularities in Florida. The Florida Secretary of State, Catherine Harris, was also in charge of the Bush campaign in that state, and African-American groups like the NAACP were protesting that as many as 80,000 blacks had been purged from the voter rolls because a Republican-affiliated Texas corporation Harris had hired to clean the Florida list found that those Florida residents had names similar to the names of Texas felons. Absentee ballots were also problematic. Those from Americans overseas tend to swing Democratic, whereas military ballots tend to swing Republican. As the New York Times noted a year later when the ballots had finally been opened and counted, quote, a statistical analysis conducted for the Times determined that if all counties had followed state law in reviewing the absentee ballots, Mr. Gore would have picked up as many as 290 additional votes, enough to tip the election in Mr. Gore's favor in some of the situations studied in the statewide ballot review. End quote. The court acts. On November 17, 2000, the Florida Supreme Court blocked Catherine Harris from certifying the election. On November 21st, it ruled that all the ballots in the entire state must be recounted, which we now know would have led to an indisputable Gore win. The Bush campaign 
brought in hired guns James Baker and attorney Ted Olson to take over. Congressman Ted De- Tom DeLay, a.k.a. The Hammer, flew nearly his entire congressional staff, along with a few others, down to Florida to stage a mob-like stunt. Coordinated with Roger Stone, posing as Floridians and banging on windows where votes were being counted, shouting, Stop the Count. Republicans organized protesters to stand 24-7 around Al Gore's Washington, D.C. home. The Naval Observatory is what it's called. Shouting through bullhorns throughout the night, Get out of Dick Cheney's house. Gore later recounted to me how terrified his children were by the ongoing and angry display. Baker and Olson turned to Rehnquist's former clerk, a millionaire Washington, D.C. corporate attorney named John Roberts, to come down to Florida to plan strategy with them to take a case to the Supreme Court that would stop the statewide recount. Roberts, who had become a friend of Rehnquist as well as his clerk, had argued many times before the Rehnquist court and had an impressive record of wins. As Miami Herald reporter Mark Caputo documented in an article for that paper, Roberts has larger 2000 recount role. Roberts was, quote, a member of the tight-knit circle of former clerks for the court's chief justice, William Rehnquist, a group jokingly referred to as the cabal, end quote. Roberts had also helped run, quote, a dress rehearsal to prepare the Bush legal team for the U.S. Supreme Court, as well as meeting with the candidate's brother, Florida Governor Jeb Bush. Prepped by Roberts, Olson and his team flew to Washington, D.C., and argued that, among other things, because the 14th Amendment demands equal protection under the law and different Florida counties use different voting systems and different criteria for determining the intent of the voters, the state was in violation of the 14th Amendment. It was just what the Republican Five on the Supreme Court needed. Although logically, if they were to rule that this was true, it would mean that every state in the Union was in violation of the Constitution and that national standards would have to be immediately implemented, they used the argument nonetheless, but said that it counted only for this one case, only in Florida for the 2000 presidential election, and did not constitute a precedent. To put icing on the cake, the Republican Five on the court ruled that they had to rule, because if they didn't stop the count in Florida, it would result in irreparable harm to the man bringing the lawsuit, George W. Bush. Stevens dissents. The four minority justices on the court were incensed. Justice John P. Stevens, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer joining, wrote in his dissent of Bush v. Gore, quote, when questions arise about the meaning of state laws, including election laws, it is our settled practice to accept the opinions of the highest courts of the states as providing the final answers. Although there may be rare occasions where the Supreme Court should intervene, he wrote, this is not such an occasion. Stevens wrote that the court had no business inserting itself into Florida's election. The federal question that ultimately emerged in this case is substantial. He went on to quote several previous cases where the court had left state voting problems to the states as provided for in Article II of the Constitution, quote, Lest there be any doubt, we stated over 100 years ago in McPherson v. Blacker that what is forbidden is required to be done by a state in the Article II context is forbidden or required of the legislative power under state constitutions as they exist. In the same vein, we also observed that the state's legislative power is the supreme authority accepted, except as limited by the constitution of the state. End quote. Stevens added that the only basis on which it would be reasonable for Rehnquist's court to accept Bush's lawsuit against Al Gore's campaign was if the Florida Supreme Court's justices, who had already ruled on the case, were totally corrupt. In fact, Stevens said, by overturning the Florida court's decision, the Supreme Court was nakedly suggesting that, quote, 
The endorsement of that position by the majority of this court can only lend credence to the most cynical appraisal of the work of the justice of judges throughout the land. It is confidence in the men and women who administer the judicial system that is the true backbone of the rule of law. Time will one day heal the wound to that confidence that will be inflicted by today's decision. One thing, however, is certain. Although we may never know with complete certainty the identity of the winner of this year's presidential election, the identity of the loser is perfectly clear. It is the nation's confidence in the judge as an impartial guardian of the rule of law. Ginsburg dissents. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg dissent was even more scathing than that of Justice Stevens, particularly with regard to the 14th Amendment. Quote, I agree with Justice Stevens that petitioners have not presented a substantial equal protection claim, she wrote. She then endorsed the Florida Supreme Court's decision to recount the vote. She concluded her dissent by saying, quote, In sum, the court's conclusion that a constitutionally adequate recount is impractical is a prophecy the court's own judgment will not allow to be tested. Such an untested prophecy should not decide the presidency of the United States. End quote. Breyer dissents. The dissent of Justice Breyer, which even David Souter joined, along with Ginsburg and Stevens, was perhaps the most direct and eloquent. It started in the first paragraph by saying, quote, the court was wrong to take this case. It was wrong to grant a stay. It should now vacate that stay and permit the Florida Supreme Court to decide whether the recount should resume, end quote. He went on to ridicule the 14th Amendment arguments, noting that the majority raises three equal protection problems, which he then describes and knocks down, saying there is no justification for the majority's remedy, which is simply to reverse the lower court and halt the recount entirely. Justice Breyer continued to bluntly say out loud that this was a political and not a legal decision, quote, by halting the manual recount and thus ensuring that the uncounted legal votes would not be counted under any standard, this court crafts a remedy out of proportion to the asserted harm, and that remedy harms the very fairness interests the court is attempting to protect. Despite the remainder that this reminder that this case involves an election for the President of the United States, no preeminent legal concern or practical concern related to legal questions required this court to hear this case, let alone to issue a stay that stopped Florida's recount process in its tracks, end quote. He hits home this point, saying that if there is to be a debate about who won the presidency, as there was in 1876, that debate should be resolved by Congress, as it was in 1876, later ratified in law by Congress in 1886. The court, Breyer notes, echoing Jefferson, is the unelected of the three branches of government, and as such should stay as far away from politics as possible. Quote, the decision by the Constitution's framers in the 1886 Congress to minimize this court's role in it Resolving fe- close federal elections is as wise it is, as it is clear. The court gets what it wants, but the majority decided in large part using the equal, unequal protection argument. In the first application for the stay, Bush's lawyers had argued that if the statewide vote count continued in Florida, the petitioners, the people bringing the lawsuit, Bush and Cheney, would suffer irreparable harm. Justice Scalia, probably considering the future makeup of his own court, agreed, quote, The counting of votes that are of questionable legality, Scalia wrote, does, in my view, threaten irreparable harm to Petitioner Bush and to the country by casting a cloud upon what he claims to be the legitimacy of the election. Apparently, for the guy who'd won the most votes, Al Gore, being frozen out of an election that he'd actually won, did not, in Scalia's world, constitute an irreparable harm that was the consequence of unequal protection by the highest court in the land. By freezing the Florida recount, the Rehnquist court handed the election to a Republican president who would go on to replace both O'Connor and Rehnquist with corporate-friendly conservative stalwarts. Roberts's reward was particularly spectacular. The man that he helped make president, George W. Bush, would eventually appoint him chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. So how will this play out with regard to the 2024 election? 
It's hard to imagine that the court will actually follow the law here rather than simply looking for a technicality they can use to avoid directly confronting and earning the wrath of Donald Trump. James Romeser over at Politico suggests there are three reasons why the court may kick Trump off the ballot. Their reputation is in the tank, and this is a chance to rehabilitate it. Removing Trump from the ballot will increase the perceived power and legitimacy of the court, and the Republicans on the court, except Thomas, represent the old-fashioned GOP rather than the MAGA wing and would like their party to return to normalcy. Odds are, however, this decision will be as political and corrupt as the 2000 Bush v. Gore was. But I'm more than willing to be surprised.